Welcome to the fifth episode of the Future Labs. My name is João Ribas and I'm your host. In this podcast series, we speak to experts around the world about the ideas and technologies that are changing the world for the better. Antimicrobial resistance is a growing concern around the globe. The World Health Organization considers it one of the biggest threats to global health that can affect anyone of any age in any country. Today we're talking to a colleague of mine, Alex Engel, partner at Novo Seeds and director of the Repair Impact Fund, a $160 million initiative aiming at combating antimicrobial resistance. Alex, great having you on the podcast and congrats on celebrating one year of the Repair Fund. Thanks, Joao, and uh, thanks for having me on your program. And uh, as you said in your introduction, uh, we are colleagues, so I hope with that that you're not going to give me any softball questions today. But uh, I'm uh, very enthused to be talking about uh, antimicrobial resistance or AMR. Alex then tells us how he went from growing up on a farm in Denmark to moving to the US and now back to Denmark. Right. Um, so currently I'm a partner here in Copenhagen uh, investing in life science. Uh, you can probably tell from my accent that I spend a lot of time in in the United States. I um, grew up in Denmark uh, on a farm not terribly far from here uh, with horses and chickens and then went to the States uh, for college and ended up doing a, a PhD at MIT in biochemical engineering, so not microbiology. Uh, then spent the majority of, of my career uh, to date in various business development roles, uh, principally with Pfizer and Baxter. And I was with Pfizer at the time that Pfizer pulled out of anti-infectives research, as has many other organizations, and returned to Denmark five years ago with my American wife and three kids. At Novo, I have uh, a few different responsibilities, but one of those is uh, leading the uh, Repair Impact Fund. We were intrigued by what impact investing means, and Alex explains to us the purpose behind the new fund and the desire to invest in strong science while making a return on investment. He makes a case for how difficult it might be to achieve just that in the space of antimicrobial resistance. It is an emerging field. As a consequence, there's probably not one particularly good uh, definition of that. But it obviously starts with impact, uh, which is that there is a purpose. And in our case, it is to advance novel therapeutics that are going to make a difference towards combating antimicrobial resistance. There are a variety of funds out there uh, that call themselves impact funds. Uh, some of them are dedicated to particular areas, such as the one that, that we have, uh, and others that have certain levels of, of philanthropy uh, built in. For us, it really means that We are first looking at the most promising science and secondly are looking to make a profit. Uh, they're obviously both important, but in, in this case where we're in an area where making a profit is currently uh, rather difficult, uh, we have chosen to label it a, an impact fund in that we uh, are not yet sure that we will be able to make a profit, at least not in the short term. We still think there's tremendous potential for the long term, but 
are really focusing on the most exciting science first. But what does repair mean? Alex clarifies the meaning of the acronym and alludes to the broken system. Having worked in, um, in a big pharma for uh, a while, uh, it is, of course, an acronym. <laughs> and it stands for Replenishing and Enabling the Pipeline for Anti-Infective Resistance. It also has a connotation towards the fact that the system is broken. Uh, so the repair is also meant to have a connotation towards the fact that we hope to contribute to a more sustainable future. It is onto itself, of course, not a repair, but it could be a contributor. How did the Repair Impact Fund come to existence? It was decided upon by uh, Nova Holdings more broadly and the, uh, the leadership and really the, the board of directors. So it has come about from a lot of good people's passion for the area. So Nova Holdings has invested in uh, previously to this fund exist, existing in seven companies focusing on antibiotics. Uh, so clearly we have uh, some experience in the area, uh, but we did not have a fund dedicated to that area. And it has become harder and harder uh, to, to make money in the area as, as evidence from a lot of people pulling out. But it is also an area where there is tremendous unmet need, clearly an area that therefore demands attention, um, not just from, uh, for us as investors, but, but broadly as, as human beings on this planet. Uh, we are all in, in, in grave danger from this problem uh, sort of running amok, and, and it is one that is growing exponential. So one can have a perspective as to how big is this problem today. Regardless, it is a big problem, and, and it's only getting bigger and bigger. The repair fund has a long horizon, and Alex explains to us how the most innovative programs were found in early-stage companies. He continues by explaining how the fund works and at what stages investments are done. In reviewing the full pipeline of opportunity, and we think that there are probably... Uh, at least 400 uh, programs around the world that uh, are really in the space. We found the most innovation in the early pipeline uh, and less in the late pipeline, which is, of course, a bit disappointing if you want to have an immediate impact, but that's just what we found. So as a consequence, we're really focusing the effort on the early stage, so specifically from the beginning of lead up or lead optimization through to through the end of phase one. So that's the, the current setup. That's where we think that there is the greatest gap. So before that, there are uh, certain other funders out there that including foundations and others uh, and governments that fund basic research. And at the late stage, we believe that there are are still monies to be had for really good programs with very solid data. And so our goal is really to progress programs to the end of phase one, such that companies will have a robust clinical data set with which they can convince others and Nova Holdings to invest further in these programs. Alex clarifies what antimicrobial resistance is, tells us how widespread the problem is, and what different factors may lie behind it. Uh, microbes uh, genetically mutate over time to develop resistance towards the uh, drugs that are thrown at them uh, that kill them. 
And so if you don't kill all of them, uh, and some of them mutate to be able to withstand the drugs that we have, they become superbugs, and we can no longer kill them. And, and that, in fact, is the case across uh, all of our existing classes of antibiotics. And uh, this problem is one that is highly um, prevalent all across the globe uh, due to differing levels of, of hygiene and uh, access to healthcare. The majority of deaths, of which there is around 700,000 per year, uh, exist in, in places where there is poor access to healthcare. Uh, however, the problem is, is growing exponentially in all geographies. So it doesn't really matter where you are, you can't hide from this problem. Alex, why have pharma companies and investors been abandoning this space? Pharma companies uh, and investors have abandoned this space uh, in a steady stream over the last decade uh, due to the difficult economics, principally. And that's also why we are finding that thinking very hard about the economics of this is a critical component in, in which we might be able to contribute. Uh, obviously, this is a biological problem. However, it is one that has been greatly exacerbated by uh, economics and politics. So in, in a nutshell, people have pulled out because they're not able to make money. But why is it so hard to make a return on investment in this space? There are a lot of reasons, but, but there are two in particular that stand out. One is uh, stewardship in that if you have a good antibiotic, um, you want to protect it and not use it as much. And so volumes for very new and, and effective products is uh, they don't take off as quickly as for other classes. And, and that is a good thing because you are protecting the drugs if physicians use good stewardship. Uh, another reason is that the reimbursement in particular in hospitals. And so the majority of people that die from these uh, most serious infections uh, die in hospitals. And so you, a typical case is a, is a patient coming in with pneumonia, or it is a patient already hospitalized acquiring an infection in the hospital, and it turns out to be resistant. Um, so the issue here is that this hospitalized patient is paid for in a bundle. It's called a DRG code. And the hospital is thus paid a fixed amount to treat the patient with pneumonia. And within that fixed bundle, the hospital must pay for radiology, diagnostics, heat, light, nurses, physicians, and drugs. And that means that if you have a new and very expensive drug, it becomes very difficult to to pay for because the DRG code is not adjusted just because there's a new drug. And given that patients like pneumonia patients are already loss cases for most hospitals, there is really no room for more expensive drugs. Alex then makes a case for how valuable new antibiotics are. Most antibiotics cost a few thousand dollars and are saving lives versus a lot of other therapeutic areas that we all uh, know well that may have prices in the 10,000s or hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, that frequently do not actually save the life and cure the patient immediately. Uh, these other treatments 
often are chronic treatments and or life prolonging treatments, not a direct cure here and now. So the value of antibiotics is tremendous. Um, it, by any stretch of the imagination, obviously the value of a life, uh, one can debate, uh, but it also enables so many other things uh, that we all take for granted that uh, you want to have a knee replacement, uh, you want to uh, have a cesarean uh, birth, uh, a number of modern medicines uh, procedures are all dependent on antibiotics working and working effectively and not having to be a trial and error game in which you have to try one drug and then it doesn't work and you have to try the next and somewhere in the midst of that the patient might die. So all of that is simply just tremendous value and, and we're not paying for it as a society today. As an investor, how do you make sure future payers are willing to pay the price of developing these new antibiotics? Yes. Uh, so that is a, the, the billion-dollar question um, in that uh, that is not the case today. And that is the reason why a lot of people have pulled out is because the answer to the question you just posed has not been solved in any country around the world. It is one where we must... Uh, corral the will and skill of a lot of different stakeholders to uh, address this problem. And it is one that requires, obviously, new products, new effective, novel products with new mechanisms that do not face resistance from industry. It is one that requires new payment models from payers. It is one that requires good stewardship from physicians. And it is one that requires uh, also a helping hand from politicians and in particular financial support from the general population that are benefiting uh, from these products. What can policymakers do to improve the issue? Yes, I mean, I think that is where we need to actually see some leadership right now is on the policy front in that we absolutely must as a society address this and address it relatively quickly. Alex then brings up an analogy mentioned by John Rex, the chairman of the Scientific Advisory Board of Repair, where he compares antibiotics to fire extinguishers. Let me just bring up the picture that the chairman of our Scientific Selection Board, John Rex, likes to talk about, which is that antibiotics are like uh, fire extinguishers, that they provide tremendous value whether or not you use them. We're all happy to pay for fire extinguishers to sit Probably there are some sitting right here in this office building that we're in right now. And we're all tremendously happy that we have, as a company, purchased them, put them there, and we're not using them. Uh, we need fire extinguishers as a society to address uh, infections that can kill us. And we're happy to not use them. In fact, we're most happy when we're not using them, but we got to have them. And so not having them is... A, a disaster waiting to happen. So when a fire comes and you don't have a fire extinguisher around, your, your house is going to burn down and a lot of people are going to die. And so that's the situation we're in. And that is the message that we have to um, obtain broader support for amongst um, the population and, and then politicians to actually uh, make change towards that. Alex clarifies next what pull and push incentives are and how those could help strengthen the space of new antibiotics. So what can politicians do? There are a number of different 
policy uh, things that people can do. There are generally grouped into things that are called push initiatives and things that are called pull initiatives. So push initiatives are initiatives in which um, policy can help create new products by supporting research or making easier path for product for companies to take their products through registration policy-wise. So clearing a a path for clearer endpoints on, on clinical trials and so on. And then there are pull incentives, which is where you from the other end are putting out an incentive, a financial incentive for companies to come and get it by creating novel therapeutics. So if you can create one of those, then you get some money in some form or shape. And, and so we've tried several push initiatives. Several of them have been highly appreciated by the industry but they are not sufficient to get to a sustainable future. So we must have pull incentives and we do not have many or almost any of those today. So that is really what we have not tried and what I would highly encourage that politicians think about. And there are many flavors of them and I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of detail as to what they are, but there are two flavors that, that we think are particularly uh, relevant and important right now. One is uh, to uh, de-link the payment of antibiotics from this DRG coding in the hospitals uh, to really put antibiotics on par with all other drugs. And the other would be um, a subscription model. One of the pool incentives explained is having a subscription model for antibiotics, very much like Netflix. This uncouples the use of antibiotics with the price of using them, giving more freedom to healthcare systems to choose when, how much, and what antibiotics to use. This is actually being piloted in the UK right now. And we're all looking very much forward to seeing that implemented, uh, hopefully starting in as soon as six months from now. But the idea is that uh, antibiotics uh, could be paid for in a model similar to a Netflix subscription model in which a healthcare system or a hospital can subscribe to a portfolio of antibiotics, and then they can use as few or as many as they want. Uh, the benefit of that is that it delinks the usage of antibiotics from volume, the same way that you delink your fire extinguisher over on the wall from using it or not using it. And secondly, it gives a predictable revenue flow for the companies that are developing antibiotics. You know that if you uh, create a product and it hits the uh, thresholds for novelty that people really want, then you will be paid something and you know precisely what you will get paid. And, and hopefully that amount is actually sufficient that it makes it attractive and sustainable for the long term. But regardless, it becomes a more predictable game, which is extremely important for people like myself that is an investor. So when one sits around and views um, investing into any kind of therapeutic. It, obviously, there's there's uh, clinical risk and regulatory risk and commercial risk. And, and we're all very comfortable addressing all of those. But for now, the commercial risk of antibiotics is sky high because zero antibiotics over the last 10 years have made their money back. And so as a consequence, nobody really believes in the commercial model and find the commercial risk to be unacceptable. A subscription model addresses that squarely on its head in that it becomes extremely clear what kind of revenues and profits one could expect to get from a product. And then 
we can simply concentrate on figuring out, is this one that will really kill the bugs and get back to the basics of evaluating good science for the sake of creating the very best therapeutic that we can find. What is the role of healthcare professionals in fighting antimicrobial resistance? Yeah, so clearly uh, every antibiotic should be prescribed by physicians. And then so as uh, the stewards of that, uh, physicians play a major role. Uh, and what I think has been, there are a couple of sort of just thoughts uh, that, that are relevant in this uh, for, for healthcare professionals. One is that healthcare professionals, uh, professionals in, in the developing world are really waking up to, to this antimicrobial resistance issue where the levels of stewardship in many places around the world have obviously not been phenomenal. But as deaths are rising in all of these places in particular, a lot of people are getting very worried and are uh, very much beginning to implement better stewardship protocols in a lot of places, not just in, in Denmark and other places where you would expect uh, for there to be reasonable stewardship. The second thing that physicians need to think about is the basic microbiology versus economics. So in a lot of places, there are pressures from the healthcare systems in which the physicians work to use the cheapest alternative possible. And that is obviously a reasonable starting point uh, for, for judicious use of healthcare dollars. However, that has in many cases pushed physicians to use inappropriate drugs for which there, there are perhaps better drugs. They may be more expensive drugs. They may be just different classes of drugs. But there is definitely an opportunity to simply use the best drugs first and have a little bit less of an eye on the economics. And really, the subscription model is one that tremendously helps on that. And in that, if the physician simply has access to the drugs that he or she needs without having to take into consideration so much what is the cost of it, then uh, they can simply focus on which of these products are going to cure this patient the fastest. The Repair Fund has two calls per year, one in Europe and one in the US and Canada. Alex highlights that, so far, Repair has received proposals across all stages of development and modalities. We uh, have seen proposals all across the spectrum of phases of development, in all of the different modalities that we've thought about and across all of the pathogens that we're trying to address. So uh, it's really been a plethora of tremendous um, proposals. And so that obviously makes the issue of then selecting a few that much harder. And, and so that has, in fact, been a real challenge. We have been blessed with a panel of experts, 10 five from Europe, five from the U.S. that are truly world experts in this field and have helped us uh, sift through all of this. And uh, we therefore were able to select four companies, obviously not a lot, uh, and we've had to say no or uh, please come back to us to, you know, 95% of the people that we've spoken with. And, and that also means that uh, we've said no to very good projects uh, that we would simply love to hear from again next year. 
Alex then guides us through the four investments done so far. Polyphor, Enthesis, Minervax and Procarta Biosystems. So we've invested in four and they've also been across the spectrum of uh, these different modalities and phases of development. Let me just take them in no particular order. Uh, Polyphor, based out of Switzerland, uh, has a cyclic peptide uh, called a, uh, an outer membrane uh, peptide, or uh, I forgot the actual specific acronym of, of their AMTA program. But it is the first n- new class of gram-negative targeting antibiotics that has reached phase three in about 50 years. Uh, so really uh, very novel uh, in its chemical scaffold and in its mechanism. Uh, but it is also remarkable that it is the first for that long uh, in the gram-negative space. So we are supporting a preclinical program, and uh, it is progressing exactly according to uh, to plan for the from from the company, and, and we're extremely pleased with that. Uh, next, let's jump to uh, Intasis, which is the only small molecule that we have in uh, in the batch so far. Uh, so a little bit more uh, in the traditional uh, way of looking at, at antibiotics. Uh, however, this team, the Intasis team, is a phenomenally experienced team. It is, in fact, the old AstraZeneca team that was spun out and that we've been able to uh, now invest in. And um, they are also in, in preclinical. Uh, let me then jump to Denmark, where we have Minervax, which is in phase one with a strep B program. It's a strep B vaccine. Uh, so it is one in which you protect the mother and newborn children from uh, streptococcal bacterial infections, uh, which is a, a major issue. And one, uh, again, where, where resistance, unfortunately, is uh, creating havoc and where we need better approaches. And therefore, a vaccine is certainly a, a, a way to really get at resistance very effectively in that you avoid the whole issue, perhaps. And then uh, the last program from Carta Biosystems based out of the UK is a very early program. So it is still in lead optimization. A very novel approach in which they are using oligonucleotides, so uh, strands of DNA that they put onto a nanoparticle that delivers it into the inner workings of the bacteria, in in which place this DNA works as a transcription factor decoy and therefore screws up the mechanism of the uh, bacterial self-replication and uh, therefore causes um, the bacteria to die. So very different approaches across the four, uh, different modalities, different mechanisms, different stages of development. And I think that is what we're striving for. So even amongst only four, there is great diversity. And that's also what we're looking for, I think, going forward. Alex, are there any modalities that you are particularly interested in? Uh, I think it's about the balance of all of those. We would love to have a portfolio that encompasses all of the ones I've mentioned. In in addition to that, 
we would love to see a phage. We'd love to see some antibodies. Uh, we'd love to see some antivirulence factors. Um, and then I would say we would love to see a lot of what I would call the other category, which are people that are approaching the problem from all these different ways and, and so on. And, and in fact, Procarta is a good example of that using these oligonucleotides is sort of a very non-traditional approach. And so there are a lot of that and uh, obviously highly risky, but also very, very exciting. And um, yeah, I would say that if and when we, we have a portfolio of 20, I, I would hope that we would have at least one in all of these buckets. What is the role of repair in the ecosystem of initiatives dedicated to antimicrobial resistance? Yeah, so we're obviously a new entrant here. Uh, not that Nova Holdings has not been in the space for a long time, but with a dedicated effort, um, we're a little bit of a new entrant, a new kid in the block. We've been around for a year, but have been um, tremendously uh, positively welcomed by organizations such as Carbax that you mentioned, uh, but also um, Guard P. BARDA, uh, Welcome Trust, um, the European Hub, uh, et cetera, et cetera, of, of organizations that have uh, existed here for, for many more years than us. But what sets us apart is that we are a um, dedicated investor, not a grantor of money. Um, and, and so we bring a different view, I think, than some of these others in that we have a slightly different lens in that we're really trying to make our money back. Uh, we invest through equity. Actually, we invest mostly through convertible loans first, but the whole point of those is to get to a situation in which we can have shares in the company. And so we would like to become shareholders of these companies. We'd like to take positions on boards and become traditional venture capitalists inventing or investing into um, this particular space where uh, organizations such as Carbex, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, Guard P, Welcome Trust and others are giving grants. And we think there is a tremendous amount of complementarity between these two efforts in that um, we obviously all have our different lenses and are looking at uh, these opportunities slightly differently through independent evaluation processes. And we uh, therefore have slightly different views. But looking at all of these opportunities, as I said, probably three, 400 opportunities exist out there uh, with different lenses. It possibly could mean, I hope it means that if an organization like Carbax looking at it from their side of things and us looking at uh, the same thing from a slightly different angle, if we both find this program to be attractive and interesting and novel uh, with a great team and we both support it, that probably means that this is a really great program and that, in fact, those programs for which we both uh, find that uh, to be interesting and attractive, that those companies then don't get, not just get funded, but hopefully get funded well and therefore improve their odds of success. Alex makes a point that bacteria will always evolve to become resistant 
to new antibiotics and highlights how he is hopeful and optimistic that as a society we will solve the economic sustainability of developing new antibiotics. Antimicrobial resistance is not going to get solved because bacteria will continue to evolve and, and develop resistance to, to almost anything we throw at them. However, um, I'm actually very hopeful that we will solve the economic sustainability part of the question. Obviously, an extremely difficult task because it requires the collaboration of so many stakeholders, but we have no other choice um, because otherwise we're all going to die. And so it is really more a matter of how long will it take us to get there as to how many body bags are we going to have to put on the table before we all get our act together and do the right thing. So there are these efforts around the world, including the one I mentioned in the UK, which are very, very much uh, going in that right direction. I also believe that some of these programs that we're investing in now are very innovative and really have an ability to make a major dent in the crisis, both from being able to address the biological issues from uh, different angles, but also by simply being very innovative uh, that they may actually attract the attention of, of physicians that want to cure patients and therefore also provide companies an opportunity to sell product and, and, and make a profit. Uh, and, and hopefully all of that can happen in, in the next, I would call it, four to seven years. Um, it, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but we're beginning to see movement. And I really would encourage everyone listening to this podcast to, to please talk with people around you about this problem. And uh, if you have an ability to influence policy in any form or shape or support policy, um, in particular, there is a, a, a bill coming up for this 116th Congress in the United States relatively soon called Disarm. Uh, if, if you listener have an ability to support it, uh, please do so. so. So I'm optimistic on the front, but yeah, it's, it's going to take a while. Alex. How do you see the future of antibiotics 20 years from now? So Jim O'Neill um, talked about the fact that in that time frame, more people will die from infections caused by resistant bacteria than from cancer combined around the world. So that's a, a, a daunting and scary future. And, and that is the path we're heading towards. Uh, and that may happen still, but... I am also hopeful that in that time frame that we're going to have some real solutions on the table, policy-wise and scientifically. So a lot of the programs that, that we're investing in now, that Carbax is investing in, uh, that BARDA is investing in, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, et cetera, a lot of those programs obviously will have made it to market by then in this time frame. And they're very risky. So who knows how many of them are really going to make it because they're very novel and they're trying very new things and, uh, and, and will have great attrition. On the other hand, it may be that some of these things really work and they may then feed derivatives of themselves and, and people sort of taking that as the next jumping off point um, to the point that we may have a future in say 25 years in which there is a new medicine cabinet with novel anti-infectives, many of them in novel modalities, and where those company names that will be on the bottle or on the IV bag will in fact be entities that are thriving places, uh, profitable companies, 
that are employing scientists uh, in the space that will continue to exist because we're going to be coexisting with bacteria for millennia. And, and so we, we need all of this. But really to perhaps give a final perspective on this, um, I am really a believer that we have the tools to address this problem and address it well. And, and so it's a combination of stewardship, of policy, of payment mechanisms, and last but not least, great innovative science. Uh, but that combination of, of dedication, uh, meaning science, policy, and money, is one that's required to address all of the most pressing problems that we face in society. And it may be, uh, and, and maybe I'm being slightly um, naive and, and, and optimistic on this front, but it may be that we in 25 years look back at this problem and say addressing antimicrobial resistance and the economic unsustainability of that situation and the imminent death threat that it put into our face really helped us crystallize our thinking towards how does one go about addressing some of these multi-stakeholder issues that are global and for which it is not clear who's going to pay for it. But it really could be the recipe and the framework for addressing a number of other problems, um, such as climate change, such as poverty and, 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 and related uh, issues, etc. And, and not that I think we can solve all of these problems uh, in, in any kind of reasonable time frame, but it may be that we begin to really get the tools for it. And, and maybe AMR is a place that, despite its massive complexity, is also one where we actually have some tools and some goodwill, hopefully. Alex, thank you very much for the conversation. Thanks, Joao, for having me on. I very much appreciate this opportunity and, uh, again, want to encourage uh, all of your listeners to uh, talk with your family, talk with your local politicians about this, because this is a problem that we're all in and we're not going to get there unless we all uh, band together to find the right path forward. Where can our listeners learn more about Repair and keep updated? Best place is our website, the Repair Impact Fund. If you Google Repair Impact Fund, you will find us. And uh, all kinds of great information is there with regards to how one sends proposals, who is really behind this, uh, what are the timelines, uh, decision criteria, uh, etc. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future Labs. This time we discussed the global threat of antimicrobial resistance and how the Repair Impact Fund is approaching the problem by investing in new companies. One of the biggest takeaways from this episode is that new antibiotics are like fire extinguishers. We need to have them, but hope we don't have to use them. If you're a startup out there working on this issue, kudos for you and keep going. As usual, don't forget to head to thefuturelabs.com to read our article on this topic and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. Our music was composed by David Ibbett and performed by Sofia Sabaya Vasek. Thank you for listening to another episode and join us again on March 26th for a fresh new episode.